Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on SBI Audio. This season is made possible through the generous support of Patreon subscribers. To become a patron, visit Drifter Sympathy on Facebook and hear more music at holysons.bandcamp.com. Almost 20 years ago now, Duncan, Dave McLean, and I all decided to go to Sri Lanka and India for really no reason. The beauty of being able to go back over your life, retell it, and rethink it is that you have this new God's eye view on the hilarity of how stupid you were, implying that there is a happy ending. It would be totally different if I was still as depressed as I was. That's why the Ugly Duckling tale is so compelling, especially when you just have no way to foresee that anyone would ever pull out of the disaster they're in. It was kind of a running joke between friends that I might live another year when I was 18. And Duncan and David were both completely destitute in their own way, uh, destined to be complete failures What's really interesting to me now about how you pull out of this pit is that the actual tool that saved me and these two guys was just merely our minds. I don't know how to stress this strongly enough, but you could not have told any of us that we would ever amount to anything in the eyes of other people. Duncan went down to L.A., and it took him years before he found an audience. And I went up to Portland, and it took me years before anyone would pay attention. And David had sort of the most tragic tale. Duncan and I cut our India trip a little bit short because we imploded and nobody was getting along. And so we waddled back home with absolutely no idea what we would do next. It kind of shocked me that David decided to go back to India. He was staying for months and months on end. And I don't know what he was after necessarily. He was on a different page suddenly. Or maybe from the outset. So when David returned to India, he was just trying to be responsible and take the larium that they give you so you don't get malaria. Stuff we'd taken before, but he didn't know that there was a rash of soldiers who had come back from taking this drug and had actually killed themselves and their entire families. So in one of the most potent versions of a true living nightmare, David woke up one day and had absolutely no idea who he was. And when I say that, I mean his soul had evaporated. He didn't recognize himself. This is not a mild case. This is something that persisted for years. So he had to rebuild himself brick by brick, and he had nothing to go on. He sent Duncan and I an email that was extremely somber once he had recovered just enough to explain what had happened, and I think we were just sort of in shock. A few years went by as he pieced everything back together into a story, and that story became a book. And he actually got the book deal by going on NPR and reading his story on All Things Considered, which opens up the great irony that all three of us, Duncan going into comedy, me coming into music, and David becoming a professional writer, drew directly off of tragedy. And in some ways, some of the most horrible shit that can happen to a person to make the thing that got us some attention. On October 13th, 2002, 
I woke up in a train station in Secunderabad, India, with no passport and no idea who I was or why I was in India. I lost my memory. I lost it along with Fred Flintstone, Marge Simpson, Jason Bourne, and scores of sitcom characters who were bonked on the head, only to regain everything with another sizable bonk. I went to India as a Fulbright scholar. I worked out of the University of Hyderabad. I had a small rooftop flat right next to an elevator engine. I was settling down to do my work. I became a member of a library. I had a friend named Veda, an Anglophile, and we had dinner together nearly every night. I was taking my anti-malarial drug, Larium, every Thursday, just like my doctors told me. One weekend in early October, I got really sick. Veda brought a doctor over to my flat. The doctor took my temperature, my blood pressure, palpated my stomach, gave me three injections. I asked the doctor what was in the injections, and he said, medicine. I spent the next two days thrashing in my damp bed and fever dreams. Veda called me in the morning of October 12th. He had nicknamed me Hero. Hello, Hero. You up for some dinner or something? I had no idea who he was. He spent the next five minutes trying to jar my memory, but as far as I knew, he was a stranger. I explained to him that he had the wrong number, and then hung up. On October 13th, 2002, I woke up in a train station in Segundrabad with no passport and no idea who I was. When I say that I woke up, I don't mean I was on a bench passed out and woozily came to. I mean, all of a sudden, I was aware of my surroundings. I was standing on the train platform, staring at a monitor. People were pushing past me. Train announcements in another language were coming out of static-filled speakers. Massive trains would sound their massive horns before they trundled out of the station. At that moment, staring at the monitors, I was a blank sheet that had just been rolled into the typewriter. No backstory no motivation, no distinguishing characteristics, no real idea what I even looked like. A man came up to me. He was wearing a uniform. He had a peaked cap and carried a long stick. He wanted to know if anything was wrong. I said to him, I have no idea who I am. Some chamber of emotion was unlocked in me, and I started to cry. Blubber, really. The policeman pulled a little away from me. He spent a moment considering his strategy and finally decided on, There, there. Please calm down. I'm used to this situation. You foreigners come here to my country and do your drugs. I have seen this before many times. My memory of that day and the next is a string of Christmas lights, where only a few are lit. All I know is that I sent an email to my parents that contained the following information. One. I was sorry for being a drug addict and for being such a terrible son. Two, I was in trouble, but I should be okay soon since the police were helping me. Three, I would be home soon and would work really hard to be a better person and earn their respect back. I swallowed the narratives that they had given me. My brain was empty and famished. I'd taken anything. Eventually, David's book came out and was called The Answer to the Riddle is Me, and I literally could not put it down. I was blown away by how tangibly he takes the reader through each micro step of the realization that you don't know anything. He came through Brooklyn on a book tour, and we went out drinking, and I just matter-of-factly went on this rant about how profound the book was, because in my mind, it was so clear what the book was about. To me, the book was this insane hero's journey on one hand, but also, philosophically, he had gone down underneath the layers of the onion that is the persona, the ego, and he was taking this stick and, like, jabbing it into the most tender, terrible place that everybody has, this simultaneous knowledge that they may not exist at all, that this is entirely a script, a Twilight Zone made for them, that their identity is a complete fucking sham, and 
by experiencing this disaster, he's left in this world that's beneath everybody's common everyday ground floor, this place where we may all end up, depending how hard on the head we get hit. And I'm going off on this philosophical treatise, and I look over at David, and he looked really, really depressed. And so I shut up immediately, and he just said, Emo, you know it's a sad story, right? I was put to bed before the sunset. I didn't sleep. The room began to twist. It didn't behave. One corner of the ceiling would be too close. Another would be miles away. The blankets itched. I was afraid to drink the Sprite. Birds flew onto the balcony and looked at me dismissively. I knew suddenly that if I left the room, I would walk into a wide pink kitchen, and there were crackers in the cupboard. And if I went into that kitchen and pulled the crackers down from the cupboard and said something, said something specific, a sentence, something that was totally, famously me, then I'd be all right. I knew that as soon as I said it, all of my loved ones would flood up from the basement and the other rooms where they'd been hiding. They would grab me and celebrate me and hold me in their arms. I stood at the door of the small room in this guest house in Secunderabad and was ready to enter into the arms of all of those people who loved me and knew me. I just needed to remember what I was supposed to say. It was right on the tip of my tongue. Every time David and I see each other again, we have to catch back up on all the things we've missed in each other's lives. Ironically, some of that stuff I've missed might have been him regaining memories that we once had. So right before the last Holy Sons tour, I went over to his place in Chicago and spent the night with his family, which finally gave us the opportunity to catch up with each other. advantage about our relationship Mm -hmm. is that in a way maybe we know things about each other that are frozen in this window of time that could could explain some sort of equation about us that it's hard for ourselves to really reconcile or or remember or even know about so so that you must have taken a snapshot of me right and and of yourself and to me that's just like uh like you have some piece of the puzzle that i can't access that's interesting because I also think that one of the things that's odd about this relationship is we both know each other really well. And then there are things that I, I have never talked to you about and have no idea about. And, and your dad was one of those. Yeah. Like, I've never had a conversation with you about your dad. Um, and and then I remember hearing that he had passed and then not knowing how to say that or... That was a really weird period of my life. I was surrounded in Portland by a circle of friends that either I wasn't 100% comfortable with at times because of my displacement to the West Coast, Mm -hmm. but also because of this other thing that's hard for me to talk about because I haven't even, as as a therapy patient in this podcast, I haven't got to it yet. Yeah, yeah. But it's like my all-consuming bitterness towards my like music career at the time mm-hmm. I was like really not in a great place mentally and then all these other life things started happening and like I'm sure a lot of people can relate to is like it's never like the right time right, right. I actually never told anyone that he died and I never told anyone anything in Portland and I don't know if it was a way of saying, like, you know, I don't even feel that close to you people. Mm-hmm. Or 
I can't, I'm not even processing this, so I'm just not even going to talk about it or act like it existed. But having known you and Duncan through a really long period of time, which is now a sort of a solid 20 years, Mm -hmm. there are these massive gaps. Life-shattering, life-altering things happen. And then uh, in a weird way, even though we weren't present for these things happening to each other, in an odd dimension, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because you just, you sort of have still the ground of your relationship will always exist sort of how it exists. Right. And so if you lost a leg. Well, you would always picture me with that leg. But even if I was picturing you with a leg, centrally, like in terms of your psychological bond with me, even though I was thinking of something super inaccurate, you'd be like, it's not like he's not right. He knows me. <laughs> With certain people, it's sort of a relief. It's almost like a time machine where it's like, oh, this is the 90s, and we can talk about this, and and I can just sort of, like, peel off the barnacles of four different heartaches. Yeah, yeah. Um, Like, because it's more abstract now, and it's a story. It's a nice little story. I realize that it's not essential to know me, to know that stuff. Where in the pit of some of the pain... I will be like, this has changed me entirely. I'm a totally different person. But, like, that's rarely true. With certain people in college, they met me after I had gone, like, super positive. Mm -hmm. And I always had this, like, suspicion that they actually didn't know me. Hmm. But you knew me when I was a mess. Yeah. And then we had this weird subplot in Chapel Hill after, which was so hazy to me. Yeah. In a strange way, that period to me represents like the best times of my life Mm -hmm. in a sense because I was just, I sensed no fear about what was coming, you know? And I, it's weird because I swear to God that you were the guy that like said to me, it must have been you had gotten out of college. You were you were in Chapel Hill or something, which I never pictured you being in. That was like right. a separate part of my life, but you just happened to go there. I swear to God, like we were talking, ha- having this casual conversation. You were like, you know, like after you get out of college, everything goes to shit. Everything you've acclimated to it at school, you said something like, you know, right. like all all the structures just gone you just like it's just an empty horizon of nothingness and and you'll never get your footing again <laughs> huh it was a very casual passing comment and i remember thinking like you know i'm not in that place yet like i'm still in school and i think i thought i was like the master of my reality you remember that feeling where you yeah. you just life was so simple man yeah you had it wired it was perfect. Yeah. And then uh, and then it ended. And then you really hit the wall and you're like, holy shit, I really don't want to go play music. I don't want to go be the person that I'm born to go try to be. I don't want to do that. And, and I don't know if you faced that same pang. You know, we all went down this long winding road of total failure. Failure. I think there was years where I didn't want to talk to Duncan because I didn't want to see what he was doing and I don't think he wanted to see what I was right. doing. And it wasn't anything but that, like, what we would have reported to each other was so sad. Yeah. Yeah. When I was about to graduate from college, I went to two of my professors and I tried to pick fights with them. So they would, they would uh, make me stay. <laughs> like, Whoa. it's one of those things I realized afterwards. Are you saying you tried to fail? Yeah. So I would have to stay. Like, wow. now I can see it. Like, Warren Wilson, really great when you're there and really shitty when you're in your 20s. Because, like, like, I had no job skills. I was a good writer, but I didn't know how to talk to anyone about that or pursue a job in that. Um, and so I just went back to working, like, crap jobs. Like, the saddest, crappiest jobs. And uh, moving in with girls because I couldn't do rent on my own. It was cheaper to, like, sort of be like, ah. Yeah, we um, would never do that now. No, never. 
I'm a dishwasher and like I'm a substitute dishwasher and the real dishwasher lives in a group home and like I have to wait until he can't make it to here to get more hours. <laughs> That's how bad you are. Right. <laughs> That's how bad I was. Um, but he had seniority. And they had like the service part, which was a big reason I went to Warren Wilson. Now that I've taught at other schools, like Warren Wilson is perfect in this. Yeah. Because every other college on the planet, there's this schism between the people who are going to college are working, 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 and making the place a mess and eating all the food. They're like locusts. Mm. And then all the people who didn't go to college are those cleaning up after them, feeding them. And so there's this sort of like um, operative metaphor going on that's teaching the students to distance yourself from those people or to realize that those people aren't your peers. And that's, that's heartbreaking and a bad lesson. Sure. So, yeah. We had to clean the toilets. We had to clean the... Well, I never cleaned the toilets. I did. I mean, somebody. You did. Oh, yeah? You were on heavy yeah. duty? I had a stint as, like, some form of janitor underneath the cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I remember I worked down there is because I have a recording of myself hyper-depressed singing The Great Pretender in a bathroom stall on a Walkman. That's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, think of the words are really perfect for that that yeah. moment. I mean, you're hiding from people in a stall. Yes. I met this kid who was a pathological liar. Yeah. And a rich kid. And we're up in the tree that I always like to climb. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine him climbing that tree. Right. But it's like he climbed it to show me we're like sort of like from the same side of the tracks, you know? Yeah. Which already was not true. And uh, he didn't go very high. He just went to like the, yeah, first, yeah, the first, first spot. Yeah, the first second branch. <laughs> yeah. First second branch. And he's like kicking his his legs out kind of like you know like he spends a lot of time up there and maybe he had like a toothpick in his mouth yeah. <laughs> that was like a look stop it yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i remember like i hadn't even we hadn't even started speaking really right and he like the one of the first things he says to me is like you know it's, uh, it's just like everybody's uh everybody's searching for something oh my god oh my god <laughs> see i'll never forget that I'll never forget when somebody does something like that where you're like, I don't know what you want, but whatever it is, it's bad. Yeah, because that is a sales line. You know, maybe he had like a nice bong and liquor and like probably like a cooler case of beer. Well, he also had the uh, uh, Nintendo. Nintendo. If somebody had like a bar in their room, you were going to go. Right. And you just happened to be the policeman underneath his room. <laughs> the first time I ever officially, in my mind, met you. I feel like you kicked open the door, but I'm sure you just knocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I just knocked. You, like, kicked open the door, and you were like, Hey! And I just remember looking up through these bottles that I'm drinking from. And I have, on my right hand, I have a Jack Daniels, like, fit. And in my left hand, I have, like, a, a Mexican beer. And I'm just pouring them both down my throat. And my eyes meet with yours. It really wasn't until, like, Duncan announced to me that, you know, we're definitely going to India. And he was like, oh, yeah, Dave's coming, too. 
That was the bridge. Yeah. Just throwing Frisbee in Agra by the Taj Mahal, <laughs> our relationship gained a new ground we would never have had back at school. Right. It's funny because having gone back and lived in India, I can see our travels through different eyes. And there was something so carefree about it because we didn't really know about sort of colonialism or <laughs> the sort of tracks we were making and the sort of tracks we were following. Stereotypical tracks in some ways. We were fools, like in some ways. Like we were just sort of wandering through. There is something really beautiful about that approach. But there's also a problem because, number one, you think you might be the first person to come up with this approach. On certain levels, it was um, sort of bumbling and it's super directionless. Right. But like, I kind of did that on purpose because I wasn't going to, you know, get the prize or, or like, right, yeah, yeah. I wasn't searching for anything. By the time we finally decided to go, to be sort of directionless seemed like virtuous to me. Instead right, right. of like, let's make sure we see the statue at 4 p.m. Right. And then let's make sure we get back on the street, you know. You're right. I mean, What's interesting is then we ended up veering really close to scams, right? Like, we spent a lot of time with dudes who were trying to scam us. Because we didn't know where we were going. Because we didn't know what we were doing and yeah. where we were going. And so we just... Uh, but we scammed them. Right. We got, like, free head massages and cold Pepsis. <laughs> when me and you, like, went to go down the Ganges, one reason why we will go down in the Library of Congress... <laughs> As true pioneers, and I had the Walkman propped up on the lip of the boat. Yeah, we were playing George Jones. I've been living a new way of life that I love so. But I can see the clouds are gathering, and the storm will wreck our home. For last night he hugged you tight. is true for I've been watching from the window up above you must have thought that I was sleeping and I wish that I had been but it's best to get to know white lightning right she thinks I still care the race is on love bug Love bug. Yeah, like the real cheesy ones. As we're sort of flowing down the like sun-dappled shit river before everything turned dark, there was this moment where we were like in Full Metal Jacket, where like the dark side is displayed with such a perfect sense of humor. Yeah. And yeah, people's legs are getting blown off, but not yet. Yeah. You know what I mean? That little Indian man is like rowing us downstream. The sounds of, of George Jones, his insane traditionalism just like kind of shining through this moment of this insanely traditional place. Yeah. But it being just so wrong, the yeah. context so wrong, but us smiling with these big smiles, yeah. like cruising down. It's kind of like deliverance. Yeah. We're like cruising down this river. We're not really supposed to be there in this moment yeah, with yeah. this soundtrack. That kind of um, knowing dissonance, that's like a little bit of where I was coming from. It's like yeah. kind of just being like, it's all the same. Yeah. Like who fucking cares? Yeah. Licking an ice cream cone while I'm going through dead babies. <laughs> that's right. There's just moments of like sort of lawless understanding. And it felt like we had that. We hit a zone. Yeah. And then it all came crashing down. Yeah. Me and Duncan just finished a, a podcast about how much time he was giving to worshiping his girlfriend when right. she was not there. And I think that that was driving a wedge between me and Duncan because I was just on this crazy independent high and I just thought that that seemed like the most obscure form of slavery, that he yeah. would have these altars to his girlfriend. You seemed crazy unhappy and my guess is it's not because of the relationship. Yeah. That's just like a smokescreen for this other thing. Yeah. He went straight at us on this thing about the Holy River. 
and me and you were like trying to just give a little bit of perspective on how sometimes things are just a river. And he said, don't you guys understand? This is the holiest river in the world. You can't just joke around about it. I hear your voice like as though it was almost mine. It was like, it was what I wanted to say. And you were like, Duncan, sometimes a shit brown river, it's just a shit brown river. If I remember right, I, I remember arguing with holiest. Yeah. Right? Like, we have a chart, and uh, in this rubric, this is the superlative holy river. Mm-hmm. Um, this is second. <laughs> Not quite as holy. Then me and him had a massive philosophical breakdown war. Even though, yeah, we were talking about metaphors and, and monks and, and all this stuff, we got to some point where we are like, didn't believe that we cared about each other. Right. And I think that's when we decided to go home. I was really shocked that you decided to go back. I, I almost didn't even understand it, but I want to guess that you had tasted something that we had missed when you kind of separated from us or something. Really, what ended up happening is I went from Delhi to Kerala on a train, and that was like a three-day train. After we left. After you left. And during that train ride, I read Ulysses on that train ride, and I had like this, these amazing, like crazy patches of time by myself. Hmm. Um, and so I went to Kerala, kind of had a weird nervous breakdown. One of the first sort of like real uh, alarm bells that... Larium was not good for me. I can see now that there were some fucked up things that were happening to me. So, but then you came home and then you went back. So I went home. This is like someone choosing to go on another tour of duty. (laughs) You're saying you look back and you actually do see like this early, uh, subtle Larium thing. Yeah. But you didn't put it all together. I didn't put it all together. I just knew that something was fucked up. So four years later, you were there a month and a half until you woke up there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in the month and a half, can you remember much about that? I remember flashes. Um, I also have photographs, and it's it's hard to know if I actually have that memory or if I've constructed something around. It's almost like the way an oyster makes a pearl by just sort of secreting shit all around it. And I think that's the way I've made a couple memories around pictures. Is I've just sort of secreted a sort of substructure to that picture. Do you remember that time we went out for a drink? It was after your book reading. And at the time, I, was, I had just finished a book and I was like, I just loved it so much. But I saw it as like this, you know, essential investigation into the void underneath everybody's sort of false persona, you know, but the, the, the bottom was, you know, not only more questions, but just sort of a void, yeah. you know, whether or not that's even has anything to do with your book or not. I thought of it as like this sort of, you know, vital investigation into the, the nature of identity. And I was so excited about it. And I remember we we're out getting a drink and I just started going down that road and saying something like, this is such an important subject. And I looked over at you and you were just sort of like, you looked kind of confused. Like, like I, I was kind of just in my own world or something, right. Which is highly possible. And you just said something like, you know, emo, it's, it's like a, it's a really sad story. <laughs> like you realize that. Cause I was making it sound like all oh, this lofty, uh, like heroic. But that's not what I meant. But right, I must right. have made it sound like, high five, let's have a drink. You yeah. Know, cool book. Yeah. But, uh, but you looked at me and were like, you realize it's, you know, a really sad story, don't you think? And, and, and I guess for some reason, like, that's not the way I really chose to read the book. Right. Yeah. That shit I never wanted to ever talk about. And suddenly I was in front of people reading it. I think I was still dealing with uh, feeling really awkward about it. It's it's my flip way to get out of my story meaning anything. Yeah. Then I can keep it in a very safe spot for me. Here are the uh, inarticulatable parts of my soul 
that in some ways I'm never going to really get at. And that like one of the things about the book is like I try, number one, never to make myself look like I get better. <laughs> like I, you know, I get better, but I never am fine. And I also, I just don't, there's a no wisdom in the book. Like in no overt wisdom. Like I, like I'm never like, and now I learned this. Sure. Right. And so sometimes I think it's a cop out. And sometimes I think it's, is the only way I ever want to read books ever. Like wisdom is sort of closing off language. It, it closes off the story and makes it into a narrower channel mm-hmm. and basically telling the reader what they should be getting out of it rather than opening up the story and and sort of allowing the reader to find their own wisdom or to not find any wisdom at all. Like those are my favorite writers who there's a sort of grace in allowing the reader to not get it. Yeah. You kind of just drifted this piece of art out into the world and it, it sort of just is there. But if they had made a movie out of it, that would have been the kind of book that yeah hit all those notes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like hit all the triumphant notes. Like yeah. God knows what that would have been, but like a beautiful mind. Oh my God. And it's just going to be this vulnerable half wit. <laughs> oh my God. Clearly, like, now, you seem to me to be the Dave that I knew just after college. But we both said, what if he's just not letting us know that he doesn't know certain things? Or, you know, what if he's not Uh, all there? Like, what if you're still pretending? How would I know? Right. Yeah, and, like, if that's the case, I've worn this mask to convince people that I'm fine George Orwell says this, um, beware of the mask you wear because your face will grow into it. And so what if, like, this has become, like, now my, uh, my method in the world? You, like, wrote a book about vanishing internally yeah. as a piece of art. Like, did it happen? Have you recovered? Are you here now? Yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I hope you are. You are. You want your heroes to be someone who have been mangled, you know, but you want them to, like, live comfortably, you know, and and not kill themselves. Yeah. There's got to be shadings of it where where you're like, it seems so surreal to even look back and be like, oh, yeah, and then I wrote a book about not existing. Right. Like, that's fucking crazy. And now to be here and that's in the past... And you have children, yeah. and you go to work every day. But it seems like a strange fever dream to look back on. It's weird, and in, in, when I was talking about, but it's a sad book. Like my joke for that year was like I was professionally sad. <laughs> it's both a joke, and it's also like really serious. Like when you write a memoir of that sort, you're making money off of the worst shit in your life, and that's either like the best kind of alchemy. Or you've just auctioned off your soul. The trip to India started off very simple. I had kind of had this weird religious awakening when God came to me in a dream beforehand, some sort of product of the serotonin being suppressed for so long that it just sprang forward and exploded. So for a year, I'd wake up every single day and I was just fucking going off, preaching, freaking out, loving everything about my life. All my songs changed. Everything got really fucking cocky. But in the most positive way you can imagine that word. The guys who were a little paranoid about using drugs over there, understandably because of the kind of trouble you could get in or the prisons you would get thrown in. So every day I would sneak away onto the backside of a train and hang out the doorway of some sort of caboose hurtling through the night and smoke whatever drugs I could get. I remember staring out the train windows and catching my reflection 
and just sort of swallowing this concept that like I guess this is what I am I use these agents for the rest of my life one of my closest loved ones is drugs but I came to India with no mission no interest in finding some sort of answer I was certain that I'd already found that so I walked through the streets with this sense of insane comfort and people just seemed to recognize me and I just fell into their world but confidence breeds a blind spot and in the blind spot a next level of negativity churns up I have lists of hazy memories falling down flights of stairs at a movie theater after slamming a bunch of Vicodin, hanging out the side of some rickshaw screaming, or ending up in an alleyway with some West Africans snorting random white powders. What seemed like an endless lazy Sunday would eventually come crashing down, just when I misjudged the amount of drugs that I had cobbled together for our ride down the Ganges River. Welcome to Going Off Track. My name is Jonah. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Brad. And we are very excited today to be joined on the podcast by Emil Amos. We talk a lot about his music and his, his time in India, and he tells us one of the craziest stories I think that's ever been told on this podcast. We stayed for three months. We lived for at least a month in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lives. And Dave, for some reason, had more ambitions about going south, which we hadn't. We've stayed mostly in the north of India. So we came home, and then what happened to him in his book happened, which is a story that, I mean, I totally find fascinating and and relate to in a way. He actually saw me go through my own little miniature version of, of that one night on the Ganges, actually. But um, his was, like, immense and prolonged in this way where, I mean, some of the details of that story are just, they're like Jacob's Ladder. They're just, like, totally horrifying, making love to your girlfriend and you don't know who she is or where she's come from or, you know, just, like, really bizarre insights into... His memory loss and like, I think he still doesn't have a year of his life, you know, that he can remember. We decided we had to take the traditional, you know, rowboat trip down the Ganges. And so there were a couple of French girls that didn't really speak English sitting on the dock where they shovel in the bodies. The basic idea is that the sadhus, you know, like the, the older gurus who die... Uh, get to be put in the Ganges, the Holy River. They might, like, tie a rock to their foot or something to try to keep them submerged. And young babies get put in there because, you know, they're innocent. And then everybody else gets burned on the dock on these piles of wood. And so part of the obligatory India trip is that you just, you're going to go see the... Taj Mahal, you're going to go see this and that. And so this part of the obligatory trip, you know, you go down the Ganges. And so part of that obligatory element is that you do the religious drugs. Because I think it's just so ingrained into Varanasi and the culture that the government, you know, there's no point in them trying to ban it. They they sell it themselves. So you, you go, and I guess we got like special opium cookies and they pull this gum off of long leaves called bang, like B-H-A-N-G. It looks like silly putty, and it's like dark, dark green. And you go and you buy the, the balls, and then you go back to your hotel, and you can get your cook to make you a bang lassi or some sort of drink to consume it. And so we had had way too much of this stuff. 
and didn't know until it was too late. Then I think I ate some cookies and was was getting in the boat with the French girls and and still like ducking down and smoking opium because I thought that the bong wasn't working and I I guess I was terrified of not being inebriated. So <laughs> the first thing that happened was our boat dipped into the water. It's so thick brown, like it's almost like a mud lava color or something. And we immediately hit a floating dead baby. It's pretty disgusting. I mean, it, it actually had like uh, things like living on it and in it, you know. But that's, you know, that's you're embracing this, the natural aspects of, of life here. We started floating down the river, and on the on the right side is the far side where nobody lives. And so somehow the bodies float back up over there, and there's these packs of wild dogs. And so they they eat the people in front of you there, and then you're hitting the bodies in the water, and then on the left, they're burning them. We're, like, going down the, the river with the George Jones playing. We started getting attacked by this... Uh, black animal with like this horseshoe kind of uh, head that looked almost like a floating cow that was really fast and could like come up around the boat and knock the whole thing you know it's something out of some sort of satanic Epcot Center thing and around that point we uh, the drugs hit like super super bad and you know you start thinking you're just gonna fall in even though you're fine your equilibrium everything is just completely destroyed nothing looks real anymore because people burning in a fire it just it just seems like a movie like it just doesn't seem like it could be possibly real and I definitely had whatever you call some sort of um, psychological implosion or something where I couldn't function at some point and didn't know what to do. This very, very, very small Indian man, incredibly muscular, like rode us back upstream and took us back to where we came from. And I fell off of the boat and kind of caught myself on David and he... He started to realize how how bad this was, like how far gone we were. And we were walking back to the room, and underneath a bridge, there was all these people performing this kind of witchy rite. Duncan and Dave kind of got sucked into it, and they were chanting and, like, banging tambourines and kind of summoning some force of the universe. And... I was just like, I just got to go reset and like, and, and clear my mind. I went back to the hotel room and I laid down on the bed, which was this huge fluffy bed. And the power went out across the city. There was no light. And I was locked in this tiny hot room. And I tried to think of what the building looked like how it faced the street things you just to get your your context you know and I couldn't think of that and I tried to think of like the stairwell or like what the door guy looked like or anything you know I started to try to think of like what I looked like or anything and I just I had nothing you know and then I tried to kind of feel my my body and I couldn't feel anything and try to sense where the walls were or the definition of like where I start and where I stop and and that's that was all gone and then I had a sense that that was just like a light like a dim little light in the dark in the entire universe you know and that there was nothing and no bounds and no sort of um there was nothing it was totally horrible like like there, there was a moment where it was okay and then I realized that I was sort of dead or going to die or some part of my brain told me get out of there or do something about it and uh, somebody eventually opened the door or something because I was locked in and then I, I fell down a huge set of stairs and ended up at a locked gate like an ape you know in a twilight zone just shaking the gate because they had locked us in to keep out hobos or something. And I was just looking out of these bars, just thinking, what am I going to do? You know, I, I, 
I don't know where I am or who I am. And, and I looked down, and there was a little tiny Indian man on the stone floor. And he smiled at me, and he just told me, come lie with me. And I was like, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and and I, I woke up the next day, and um, I wasn't happy anymore. I, I couldn't believe I could be destroyed so easily, you know, like in one night like that, just totally mentally shattered. David's story is like that over the course of two years, which is not cool. That's not, I mean, because his is attributed to a drug, you know, that the government sanctions, you know. Have you thought about writing a book at all about your, maybe not, I mean, that experience is incredible, but just maybe a broader or anything like that? I used to work on a book five or six years ago, like all the time, actually. It was about how I had a... Uh, a guru when I was 15 or so. It wasn't like a normal guru. It was like an evil guru. I like to think we're like uh, Rimbaud and Verlaine, like two like completely fucked up people on the outskirts of, of society, like laughing and kind of uh, performing magical rites late into the night and, and existing on another planet. Peace is what I had come searching for. Spiritual comfort, thoughts far from those of war. And then I went on with my pilgrimage to find the home of light. I traveled on for quite a while until late in the night. It seems then I move time and space like scenes in some fine play, and all beings seemed to welcome me as I went on my way. I saw things that were far removed from what I thought was truth, and then I knew I'd come upon the soul's home and its youth. Peace is what I had come searching for. Spiritual comfort thoughts far from those of war. I woke up in a daze from deep within and then my vision ceased. That was the way I came upon my journey to the east. 